A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Seems simple enough, but nevertheless, Democrats persisted in trying to rob words of their meaning. Fortunately, we will be joined today by Eugene Volokh, Gary T. Schwartz, Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA. Uh, just a little background, Professor Volokh scored a 780 out of 800 on his math SAT at age 10, began working as a computer programmer at age 12, graduated UCLA with a degree in mathematics and computer science at age 15 while working as a computer programmer for 20th Century Fox. He later earned his law degree from UCLA, at which point he clerked for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Alex Kaczynski and Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Justice Scalia cited Professor Volokh on three occasions in his opinion for the landmark gun rights decision, District of Columbia versus Heller. Now I know, I know, if this were a mainstream news outlet like CNN, we would bring on traumatized know-nothing teenagers to discuss this topic. But here on The Michael Knowles Show, you'll just have to settle for nationally recognized experts. Then, speak of the devil, CNN invents a whole new class of firearms. Sheriff Scott Israel vindicates Jeff Sessions, and the Heritage Foundation says President Trump is outpacing Ronald Reagan in affecting its conservative agenda. Let's get right into it. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Professor Volokh, thank you for being here. Uh, very much my pleasure. So just to begin, a, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment reads specifically, the right of the people. It doesn't say the right of the state. It doesn't say the right of the federal government. What does that say about the nature of Second Amendment rights? Uh, yeah, that's right. I, uh, the rights are rights of people, people like you and me. Uh, that's what the Supreme Court held in D.C. v. Heller and then in McDonald versus Chicago. And I think it held it correctly. That was also the view of most courts and commentators dealing with this. In fact, almost all of them through the uh, 1800s and through uh, the early part of the 1900s. Uh, a bunch of courts uh, adopted the so-called states rights view or militia rights view, uh, which seemed to be focused on preserving the rights of states to run their own uh, uh, National Guard type organizations. Uh, but uh, uh, that started in about the late 1930s and then was rejected eventually by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, that's, uh, that's a, a, an anachronistic view. That's not something there's any evidence that the framers uh, believed. One other thing to keep in mind is the, um, when the uh, Second Amendment does mention the militia, that seems to refer to uh, basically the entire adult citizenry. Back at the time of the framing, it was the adult uh, white male citizenry. Today, it would be pretty much all adults, because that's what militia was understood to mean, the armed citizenry, uh, rather than some special selected uh, uh, army or National Guard-like group. That, that always strikes me, the militia, because uh, opponents of the Second Amendment and of gun rights will say, well, see, we don't have militias anymore and you're not in the militia, but there being a militia presupposes gun rights because people have to have their own guns. And I, I want to ask you about this justification clause versus this operative clause. It says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That is the justification clause, the, the dependent clause, uh, and, and then there's an operative clause which says the, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. 
opponents cite the justification clause all the time. What is the relation between the justification clause and the operative clause itself? Well, uh, it seems to me, and seems to the court, and I think this was the general understanding around the time of the framing, that uh, uh, the operative clause is the part that actually indicates what uh, right is secured. And then the, the justification clause, the first clause in this case, explains why it's secured, or at least one of the reasons why it's secured. So it says quite clearly the right of the people, not the right of the state, not the right of the militia, the right of the people. Uh, and uh, uh, again, the justification clause fits that actually pretty well once one understands what militia means. Even today, if you look at the federal statute, uh, Title 10 U.S. Code Section 246, it defines the militia as consisting of all able-bodied males at least 17 years of age and under 45 years of age. Uh, so today, in light of uh, developments in equal protection law, I think it would also be understood as including potentially females as well. Uh, so it basically has long been understood as referring to uh, 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 able-bodied uh, um, uh, uh, adults. Uh, uh, to be sure, people above age 45 still have the right to, to uh, keep and bear arms. They're still members of, of the people. Uh, but it explains why the Militia Clause and the, uh, and the Right of the People Clause actually fit together pretty well. Um, uh, there turns out, if you look at state constitutional provisions uh, from around the timing of the framing, uh, this sort of uh, um, uh, uh, two-clause construction is actually pretty common. Uh, sometimes you see free press clause uh, uh, provisions uh, uh, the same way. Like, for example, 17... Um, uh, 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 excuse me, uh, the uh, first Rhode Island Constitution, which was enacted in 1842, Rhode Island was slow getting its own post-revolutionary constitution. So they're the a little slow the up press. there. They're very, you know, they're very relaxed up in uh, Rhode exactly. Island, Vermont, right? Exactly. The liberty of the press being essential to the security of freedom in a state, comma, any person may publish his sentiments on any subject being responsible for the abuse of that liberty. Uh, very similar language, right? being essential to the security of freedom in a state. That explains, kind of as a rhetorical matter, because constitutions are also political and rhetorical documents, it explains why they're securing the freedom of the press, but the operative clause is the part that's the law. Any person may publish his sentiments on any subject. And you see something similar in various other provisions in 1780 Massachusetts Constitution, 1784 New Hampshire Constitution. These kinds of two-clause constructions are actually pretty commonplace in constitutions of that era. And they always say, the, the opponents of gun rights, they always say, well, it, it's such a strange constitution or such a strange structure for the U.S. Constitution. But of course, I think this is because our perhaps lightly educated friends haven't looked at other state constitutions and haven't looked at uh, linguistic conventions of the era. But there's even a grammatical point here, which is that there, there is an independent clause which says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And then there is a clause which is not an independent clause, which is this just justification clause, this justi justificatory clause. Uh, I, I also want to get to the operative clause, which is shall not be infringed. The wording of the amendment seems clear, and of course we've interpreted that to mean shall be rather infringed. <laughs> Why did the framers phrase it the way that they did, rather than saying, for instance, people shall now have the right to keep and bear arms? Why is it shall not be infringed? Right. Well, the uh, rights uh, secured by the Bill of Rights, uh, with a few exceptions, the Establishment Clause is one, but uh, most rights, setting that aside, were 
long, long accepted rights. Uh, the right uh, to keep and bear arms that uh, had existed, has been understood as one of the rights of Englishmen long before uh, the Constitution. In fact, it was mentioned, although in much weaker form, in the English Bill of Rights of 1689. Uh, the same is true of the freedom of the press uh, and the like. Um, uh, so they were taking existing rights that they understood as being, uh, being uh, secured by traditions of, of English law, and they were saying those rights cannot be infringed by the federal government, and state constitutions uh, often said something similar about uh, uh, no infringement by state governments. I should say, I don't think the framers view these rights as absolute. Of course. Just like they uh, recognize that the freedom of the press might coexist with libel law, for instance. Uh, so I think they were open to some restrictions that didn't count as infringements of the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Unfortunately, it's not really clear what they were. There's actually very little evidence about exactly what they understood uh, 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 to be to be covered or not at, at the level of specific detailed uh, 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 restrictions. But it is pretty clear that they understood the big picture right as being a right of individuals to possess uh, uh, at least uh, certain kinds of arms. And I do love the idea because, of course, yes, there, there can be reasonable restrictions in some ways, especially if it overlaps with some other uh, right. But I, I do love it. In that Rhode Island 1842 constitution it says the liberty of the press being essential to the security of freedom in a state. Uh, now, so frequently gun rights opponents, they say, well, we don't need militias. So if that, if that is uh, unnecessary now, we don't need the operative clause. But I will say looking around at this current state of the free press, I wonder if we could question the justification in, uh, in that clause of the Rhode Island Constitution. Surely we wouldn't say CNN has become so ridiculous at this point we no longer need a free press. I think they would be much more afraid of taking their, their logic to its logical conclusion. Uh, on, the, on the question of the individual right, on Heller, you were cited three times in that decision. Uh, our, our benighted friends on the left now insist that until Heller the individual right to keep and bear arms was considered bizarre and ridiculous in some way. Writing in political, uh, Politico, Michael Waldman of NYU Law writes, quote, the NRA rewrote the Second Amendment. Can you clear that up? Did the NRA rewrite the Second Amendment? Uh, no, not at all. Um, uh, so if you look at uh, uh, discussions of uh, the right uh, to bear arms, uh, 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 not long after the framing, uh, if you look at the discussions of the English right to have arms that this uh, right was uh, clearly based on, and again was an extension of uh, from before the framing, if you look at court cases uh, in throughout the 1800s, and you look at quite a few, st especially state court cases in the 1900s, it's quite clear uh, that the right was understood as being a right of individuals. Now, to be sure, the right could be limited in various ways, uh, including ones one might disagree with. Uh, um, in the 1800s, for example, it was common for courts to say, well, the right doesn't include the right to carry concealed weapons, because that's something that sneaky people do, not good, upstanding Americans. Uh, but, uh, but that was understood as a limitation on the individual right. In fact, if you look at uh, the Supreme Court's decisions that mentioned the right to bear arms, and there were quite a few, although very few dealt with it uh, directly, the overwhelming majority just talked about it as the right to keep and bear arms, without even 
mentioning the militia clause. Right. They recognized that uh, it's all about the right. And again, they mentioned it often as an example of a right that could be limited in various ways. So it, so uh, what I think the accurate way of describing it is that uh, the dominant view throughout much of American history was it was an individual right. Federal appellate courts, starting with the late 1930s and up, up until... Uh, the early 2000s, often said it was a state's right. So, and they were quite influential. So, indeed, among federal courts, this was the uh, federal appellate courts, this was general understanding was contrary to what the court accepted in Heller. The 1939 Miller decision from the Supreme Court was ambiguous on this. Some other decisions after Miller actually seemed to treat it as an individual right. Uh, but uh, uh, what happened was that there was therefore this dispute on the subject uh, with the older authorities seeming to support more of the individual rights view and the more modern 1900s authorities, especially from federal courts supporting the state's rights view and the D NDCV Heller resolved the dispute. And so I guess we'd have to say it's not the NRA that rewrote the Second Amendment, it's the federal courts and the appellate courts that rewrote the Second Amendment. And fortunately, it has been, there has been a reform of the reform. And, and now what I, what I really want to ask you about now are these muskets. This is this constant line we hear. But before we can talk about muskets and how uh, our lefty friends think that the Second Amendment only protects muskets and yada, 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 we have to talk about something almost as important, which is toothbrushes. Toothbrushes are uh, probably in your daily use much more important than whatever guns or ha handguns or rifles you own. And uh, we have to thank our sponsor, Quip. Quip is very good. Let me tell you something, folks. I The only reason that they keep me around here is for my shiny white teeth. It is, they don't do it for the show, they don't do it for anything that I write or say or anything like that. It's my shiny white teeth. And who can I thank for shiny white teeth? My electronic toothbrush. Quip, when it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. Quip knows that. They have combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. It is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations, ooh, into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric toothbrushes. You remember in the old days, you'd have to carry, you'd have to carry a separate suitcase with you when you traveled to fit in your electric toothbrush and the chargers and the plugs and probably uh, a, you know, a power generator or something. Now you don't have to worry about that. It's very slim, it's very sleek, it's very modern. Uh, gu they're guiding pulses that alert you when to switch sides, which makes brushing for just the right amount of time effortless. Uh, uh, very often people overbrush, or they, not me, I obviously underbrush, I go doot, 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 and I'm out of there. But Quip will tell you and guide you on how to brush your teeth. It also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, whether it is in your gym bag, not exactly in my case, uh, or it's a carry-on when you're traveling on an airplane or something. Uh, because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean, and this is really the best part, Quip's subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5. That is very cheap, and you don't need to go to a drugstore and accidentally go down the wrong aisle, and then you, you know the one that men aren't supposed to go down, then you feel very strange and you're very self-conscious. Don't worry about any of that. They'll send it to your door. It includes free shipping worldwide. It's backed by over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Most toothbrushes don't get named Time Magazine's Best Inventions of the Year, but Quip did become one of Time's uh, best inventions of the year. Find out for yourself why. It starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S right now, you will get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That is your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, like Jay-Z's wife, spelled 
G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Okay, away from toothbrushes, back to guns. Uh, Professor Follick, <laughs> in our last five, five or so minutes here, the other main argument that we hear from the left is uh, that at the time of ratification, the Second Amendment was understood to protect only muskets or something. These people, of course, have never heard of the Brown Bess or the Girondoni rifle or the Belt and Flintlock, the latter of which was offered to Congress in 1777 and could fire 20 rounds in five seconds, which is much faster, I assure you, than I can shoot an AR-15. Regardless, what do we make of this argument that the, the Second Amendment protects only 18th century gun technology? Uh, the same thing we'd make from an argument that says, well, the First Amendment can't protect the Internet because, of course, the framers didn't have the Internet. How could those geniuses who invented our country, how could they ever have foreseen advancing technology? How No one could imagine that. Uh, right. And in fact, actually, they lived at a time when they felt themselves to be in the middle of technological revolution, which they were. That was the first industrial revolution. They saw the world changing around them. They recognized, by the way, that the freedom of the press was the freedom to use a particular technology, which at the, which was understood as a major invention. It had been invented 300 years before, uh, but it was understood as a huge technological advance. Uh, and uh, uh, they, when they said the freedom of the press, uh, they uh, literally were referring to just one technology, the printing press, but uh, the courts have recognized that, of course, that applies more broadly to, uh, to new technologies as well. Uh, and likewise, they talked about arms there. They didn't even limit it to one technology. They didn't say even firearms, much less muskets. They said arms more broadly. And that term clearly covers uh, uh, modern arms uh, as well as arms that existed at, at the time. Whether we see it in other situations, too, obviously, Congress has the power to regulate commerce, including commerce through air travel. Congress has the power to raise armies, uh, but also it includes to provide an air force for those armies. Uh, courts have long recognized that uh, uh, that uh, constitutional provisions need to be read in light of uh, their application to modern technology and not just sort of uh, uh, applicable as only to, to uh, pre-existing technologies, and again, we see that we see that in the First Amendment. And of course, the the use of the word arms may have been prescient because, as we know, many more people are killed each year with hands than are killed with uh, rifles of any sort, including the AR-15. Maybe arms even includes arms itself. The, the, these these people, you know, uh, Benjamin Franklin, a founding father, a founding grandfather. It was a world-renowned inventor. The suggestion that these people didn't realize that technology would advance seems to me highly suspect. Uh, now, on gun control uh, as a civil rights matter, it has always seemed to me gun rights are civil rights. They're constitutionally protected civil rights. Uh, this is, it's also the same that uh, soldiers not being quartered in my home is a civil right. Uh, civil rights activists for centuries have recognized the importance of the right to bear arms, Frederick Douglass and many others. Now Oprah says that gun control is the new civil rights movement. How did a civil right come to be regarded as an obstacle to civil rights? Well, uh, I support gun rights, but I, I have to, uh, I, th I think there, there is uh, something plausible at the heart of the, of the Oprah claim that you're quoting. Because one really important civil right is the right to be protected against crime. And I, I totally understand that people uh, are worried about crime and mm. worried in particular about gun crime, which is particularly lethal. Uh, uh, that is to say, uh, your, your chances of, uh, uh, if you are shot at with a gun, your chances of dying are a lot higher than if you're punched, let's say. Right. Um, 
uh, so so uh, people are rightly worried about this. Uh, it's just that, first of all, I do think the Second Amendment makes a particular choice in favor of allowing people to arm themselves. And if you don't like that, you can repeal the Second Amendment, but you shouldn't ignore it. Uh, but second, uh, the Second Amendment does, I think, leave a lot of room for gun regulations, including ones that I think might be unsound. Not everything that's unwise is unconstitutional. Right. But there the question is, would it really help? And a lot of the regulations that I hear proposed I don't think are going to be terribly effective. So, if you ban military, so-called military-style semi-automatics, uh, then people will switch to supposedly non-military-style semi-automatics, which, in generally speaking, are about as lethal as the ones that people are proposing to ban. Now, to be sure, fully automatic guns might be a good deal more lethal. There does, does seem to be real evidence of that. But those are already very heavily regulated and largely banned. Uh, so I, I do think that there is an important right that we have to be protected by the government that we hire to do the job. Uh, and in some situations, like in the Florida shooting, it looks like there was a real failure of government protection. Uh, but uh, it, it seems to me that trying to deny people the right to defend themselves isn't really going to make uh, the rest of us more uh, more secure. Oh. I see the arguments for why it might. I think if you look at the criminological data, it doesn't seem very likely. I always loved Justice Scalia's uh, category of things that are stupid but constitutional. And of course, a uh, uh, some new law, or I suppose some old law banning a gun like the AR-15 may not be unconstitutional, but of course we've, we've seen the effect of the so-called assault weapons ban. The effect on gun homicide was negligible. Uh, and so I, perhaps you're right. There is, there is a lot of feeling that uh, one has a civil right to be secure in my person, in my property, but uh, when you actually look at the laws themselves, they don't seem to be able to prevent any of these mass shooting incidents or, uh, or have much, much effect on gun homicide whatsoever, which has been declining for decades. On the uh, question of gun control itself, the first federal gun control law in the U.S. came in 1934, the National Firearms Act, to my knowledge. Uh, how did that law and subsequent uh, federal gun control laws affect the nature of the gun control debate? Well, um, I, I think uh, uh, the gun control debate historically has been mostly at the state level. Uh, if you look at the pattern of, of existing gun control laws, the, the, uh, in my own California, for example, the main form of restraint, I think, on the right to defend yourself with a gun is it's very, very hard to get a uh, a license to, to carry a gun, and in, in many places, it's it's basically impossible. In, in L.A., uh, it's virtually impossible. Right. That's a state-level law. And if you look at the main, uh, the most important gun-related legal change of the last 30-some years, it's been gun decontrol. It used to be that basically 40 states, you either needed uh, a, a license which was not necessarily broadly available. It was on a May issue basis where it was all a matter of whether your sheriff liked you uh, or uh, in order to carry a concealed gun, or you couldn't get a license at all. Concealed carry was categorically banned. 10 states, you were allowed to do that uh, either in uh, most of them by getting a, a license or in Vermont was one state where you didn't even need a license. Now the number has flipped. It's 40 states where you're legally entitled to either a license to carry concealed or you don't even need a license in several states. And only 10 states in which, uh, uh, in which uh, you uh, essentially it's up to the government and the government often says no uh, as to whether to give you the license. So uh, most of the gun control debate really is at the state level. Now, to be, to, to be sure, uh, one thing that uh, 
pro-gun control forces say is state laws are just pretty easy to evade because it's easy to go across state borders and get something. Especially Bring something laws, right over not, the border, of course. Right. Right, especially laws that don't limit carrying, but laws that limit possession, essentially, uh, um, can be easily evaded if they're the state level, which is why I think they've tried to set up federal level bans. But uh, uh, generally speaking, it's been pretty difficult for them to accomplish that politically, because even though there are some states which are pretty solidly anti-gun, at the federal level, uh, it's very hard to make to muster a political majority to restrict guns. And when it was uh, when it was done, for example, in 1994 with the assault weapons ban. It was thought one reason that the Democrats lost control of uh, Congress uh, that fall was because of the backlash against the ban. And then, indeed, the ban was in effect for 10 years. It wasn't renewed. There were studies, uh, including by people who are not pro-gun rights, uh, of uh, whether there was a, a, any visible effect. And it's not just the effect was minimal. If there was any effect, it was too little to notice, and there's no reason to think there was an effect. There was a, an experiment that was conducted, and there's no reason to think the experiment was successful. Well, this is a, that's a wonderful note to end on. One, in that uh, we, d we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, crazy changes in gun homicide. But also, the Democrats have been pushing so hard for gun control these past few weeks. Uh, one wonders if we can have another 1994, another Republican wave. When I read your work, uh, Professor Volek, I always feel much better about this, the, my country and the state of the state of law. And now speaking to you, it does exactly the same thing <laughs> in, in this particularly political way. Professor Volek, we have to let you go teach a course, I believe. But thank it's you. So, thank you so much for taking the time. If very illuminating, I, you know, rather than I know what we're supposed to do in the news these days is just bring on teenagers to demagogue issues. But I suppose we'll make an exception to have a national expert uh, explain it to the audience as well. So thank you very much. Very much my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Is that guy just the smartest guy in the entire world? I don't know. When I, when I, just, when I read Professor Volokh or I, I speak to him, I just think, wow, there is, a, there is a level of intelligence that I will never reach, but at least I can read him and he'll tell me what to think. Okay. Before we move on, we have a lot of news to get to, and we, I do want to put a button on this, this gun question. But before we do that, we need to talk, we need to talk not just about guns, we need to talk about razors. We have, that's another, this is a very productive and important <laughs> thing that I use every day. I certainly use it more than, uh, than what we've been talking about. And that would be my razor, which I love. I'm talking about Dollar Shave Club, which does many great things. It allows me to have my nice smooth skin and it keeps the lights on in the studio. So please give them a shout because we really like Dollar Shave Club. When I say Dollar Shave Club, if the first thing that pops into your head is an amazing, affordable shave, then I am going to blow your mind because I talk about the razor all the time, but they have so much more than that. Dollarshaveclub.com. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. It is more than just razors and it is better than shopping in a store. You know, I never would go to a store anyway. I've always used nice razors, uh, but I would never go into a, a store to refill the razors because I am a millennial and I am fused to whatever sitting vessel I am in at the time. So uh, I on the rare occasion I would go to a drugstore to get razors. As a man, you know, you always end up walking down that aisle that you're not supposed to walk down and then you feel very self-conscious and you think, oh, where are the razors? And oh, yuck, I don't want to be part of that. Be, come on guys, it's 2018. Be keeping up with the technology. Have them send razors right to your door and you won't get just razors. Uh, Dollar Shave Club offers everything you need to look, smell, and feel your best. Shampoo, body wash, toothpaste. 
They're definitely the best razors I've ever used. They go really well with the Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. It's not that giant foam that your father used. It's not that little gel stuff that soy boys use. It's a nice, good American Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. Um, it helps the razor glide across your skin. You have got to experience it. Another uh, must-have experience is how they just deliver everything to you. You do not have to think about it whatsoever. For a mind-blowing experience, join Dollar Shave Club today. And for just $5, with free shipping, you will get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, and how do I put this? Uh, you know... You know when you're in Europe and you want to get a little cleaner during your trips to the water closet, you know, a little cleaner than people get in America, and you want to maybe wash a little bit where the sun don't shine, well, don't get a bidet installed in your home. That'll be very expensive. Just use One Wipe Charlie's. I'll let you use your imagination for what they're for. Apparently very effective. Uh, then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more per month. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash covfefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E. That is dollarshaveclub.com slash covfefe. Okay, let's, we got to put a button on this. We have to get to uh, Heritage Foundation's wonderful report about President Trump and his administration, but let's put a, put a period on this gun control debate. CNN is now, they've invented a new class of firearms. They're warning Americans about the dangers of full semi-automatic weapons. Watch. This is what an AR-15 sounds like. <laughs> General sounds Mark like Herman a gun. <laughs> served in the U.S. Army for 37 years, so he knows what the AR-15, which used to be a weapon of war, can do. And he has strong feelings about the semi-automatic assault-style rifle, which is the precursor to a weapon currently used by the military, the M4. Now, those are single shots. If I wanted to fire this on full semi-automatic, all I do is keep firing. Now, I won't probably hit the target when I do this, when we look at the target later on, but I'm going to fire about right, five shots. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with this. He goes and he says, this is what an AR-15 sounds like. And then do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a gun. That's what it said. I was shocked. My jaw hit the floor. I said, wait, you're telling me that gun sounds like a gun? I, can't, I thought it was going to sound like a cuckoo clock or something. Wow. So it sounds like a gun, and then he fires it, right? And he fires it slowly, as one may fire a gun. He says, boom, 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 okay? And he said, okay, now I'm going to go full semi-auto. <laughs> and full semi-auto is a contradiction in terms. There are guns that are fully automatic. That's when you pull the trigger once and a gazillion bullets come out. And then there are guns which are semi-automatic where you pull the trigger once and one bullet comes out. And you can hold it down as long as you want, it's just gonna be one bullet that comes out. So what CNN is obviously trying to do, very dishonestly, is conflate the two things. That's why they always say it's military-style weapons. This is not what they use in the military, I assure you of that. Uh, so, uh, he, but then he says, okay, now I'm gonna go full semi-auto, but he, it's not like he clicked anything on the gun, he just pulled the trigger faster. He didn't even pull it that fast. He just started, he said, now I'm going full, I gotta warm my finger up here, don't you? This is a federal uh, weapon, this is an assault weapon right here, is my index finger, bang, 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 bang. Totally, totally disingenuous. But just to, just to compare for you, what they're trying to make you think is that AR-15s, the most popular rifle in America, 
that they are like machine guns or like they're assault rifles, you know, guns that have a fully automatic fire. Here is a guy shooting an M240 machine gun. The gunner will fire 10 seconds or 130 rounds. We will then score the results. Let's watch. I got to tell you, I think not even that CNN guy's assault finger could fire at that rate of fire. That was really, you know, just, I don't, I don't know how he could do it. You'd have to get some much higher license of uh, index finger in order to fire that fast. Now here is a guy shooting an AR-15, a regular old shotgun, and a Glock 19. Here, here is that. See if you can tell the difference. Now, I don't know, did you, could you tell the difference? Could you spot the difference there? The giant machine gun that was shooting a gazillion rounds per second or just the regular old guns? The handgun, the Glock, the shotgun, a regular old shotgun, and the AR-15, those all sounded exactly the same because you pull the trigger once and one bullet comes out. They all sounded quite different from the gigantic machine gun that that military guy was shooting. Th those are the two things. CNN really wants you to conflate the two. You're going to hear the phrase full semi-automatic weapon now, I'm sure, on CNN. I think Steve Crowder actually did a joke about this. He was doing a little bit and someone said, is that an automatic weapon? He goes, yeah, it's fully semi-automatic. Fully semi-automatic. It's like a jumbo shrimp or something. Uh, so but just wait for that one. It is just it is completely ridiculous. But make sure that the reason we don't let Democrats write our gun laws is they don't know anything about firearms. They don't know anything about firearms. If you have ever once been to a gun range, you know much more about firearms than virtually any elected Democrat in this country. Don't let them get away with this. Make sure when they start spouting off and your lefty friends start spouting off on guns, just show them those videos. Say this, this is an automatic weapon. This is an AR-15. This is a shotgun. Why is the shotgun okay, but the AR-15 isn't okay? They both fire the same rate of fire. The shotgun is going to blow a much bigger hole in the wall than the AR-15 is. Just a few of those little, those hate facts, you know, just drop a few hate facts on them. And I think it, it will quell down at least their hysteria. Okay. Speaking of, uh, guns not being handled properly, real gun control where the sheriffs didn't use the guns at all. Sheriff Scott Israel, the guy who blames everyone for his own failings, uh, except for himself, the buck stops just before Scott Israel, that guy, uh, he apparently circulated a memo to employees instructing them to vigorously defend him against conservative calls that he resigned. Now, I'm sure that Scott Israel will probably deny that he circulated that memo, uh, but uh, regardless, he will say that somebody beneath him did it, you know, and that he can't be held responsible for things that he didn't know, even though, of course, it is his job uh, to know those things. Um, but this, this is a reminder that sheriffs are politicians. I'm going to go into that a little bit because people don't understand that. Sheriffs are politicians. But I'm sorry, look, if you're on Facebook and YouTube, well, you're not on YouTube. But if you're on Facebook, you haven't been on YouTube in months, I'm sure. But if you're on Facebook, you have to go to dailywire.com right now. I know you want more. Listen, we did, we went an extra five minutes today, I think, just so you could get all that, all those hate facts from Professor Volokh. But 
you got to go to dailywire.com. It's $10 a month or $100 for an annual membership. What do you get? You get me, the Andrew Clavin Show, the Ben Shapiro Show, the conversation next time starring the big boss, Ben Shapiro. And you'll get uh, to ask questions in the mailbag. Make sure to get your mailbag questions in. None of that matters because now we, there, are, there, is a, there are a lot of assault emotions coming out from Democrats and CNN, and you're going to want to be able to defend yourself and your families. I promise you, the Leftist Tears Tumblr is protected for civilian use in the Second Amendment. The right to protect yourself from radioactive leftist tears shall not be infringed. But you've got to make sure that you can protect yourself. You have to have this important vessel, which uh, is the only FDA-approved vessel to store leftist tears, hot or cold, always salty and delicious. Go to dailywire.com right now. We'll be right back. You know, Sheriff Israel, this guy is unbelievable. The gall of this guy, if he were an actual law enforcement officer, he would have resigned a week ago, wouldn't he have? Because he would have had integrity and he would have, he probably would have done his job actually if he weren't, but he's not a law enforcement officer. He's a politician. He, we, we don't, re, we don't re, uh, remember this too much in the United States, but uh, Jeff Sessions got in trouble the other day. He said, the office of sheriff is an important part of the Anglo-American heritage of law enforcement. And they called him a racist because people don't know what words mean anymore. But uh, the sheriff's office is an elected office. And it's so the civilians can have some control over their law enforcement to protect against tyrannical governing. Uh, so the, the office of sheriff is this guy. There are several photos of this guy, Sheriff Israel, posing with Hillary Clinton. He endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016. If he were a regular old police officer, somebody working for the government, he wouldn't have been able to do that so publicly. But he's just a politician, apparently a Democrat politician, who goes out and endorses candidates. And what do politicians always do? They pass the buck. They do their best to avoid any sort of uh, responsibility. He went on Jake Tapper. He ignored, uh, Jake Tapper, I think, suggested he ignored 23 warnings about the shooter in Florida. But uh, then there was a word around that he uh, ignored 39 warnings about the shooter. And he said, absolutely, we didn't ignore 39. I guess he's right. He apparently ignored 45 warnings. His office ignored 45 warnings about this shooter. He goes on Jake Tapper. He says, I've done an amazing job. I, amazing leadership from me, Sheriff Israel. He's a politician who's going to pass the buck, but he failed. He utterly failed. None of his excuses hold water. And we should hold him to account just as we hold politicians to account. This is the reason the sheriff gets elected is so that we can kick him out when he does a terrible job and people should kick him out. It is a really a despicable display to go up there knowing that your own deputies didn't go into the, uh, go in and fight, didn't go in and try to stop the shooter, to, to know all of that and go and try to demagogue and vilify a civil rights organization. Really awful stuff. And we shouldn't let up. I mean, we should tweet this guy every five seconds. Now he's trying to tweet all the good things that the sheriff's office is doing. They caught some kid who could have shot up a school or whatever. Too little, too late, buddy. Sorry, you missed your chance uh, to quote a great man sad. Uh, there is another point that gets lost in these debates beyond Sheriff Israel. There is not an epidemic of school shootings in America. There is not one. I know if you watch CNN, it seems like there is. And they're all saying that there is an epidemic of school shootings in America. That's the premise of all these new gun control policies. The data don't bear that out. A new analysis by James Allen Fox, the Lippman family professor of criminology, law, and public policy at Northeastern University shows this is not an epidemic. Mass murders in the United States, a country of well over 300 million people, occur 20 to 30 times per year. 
and uh, mass murder meaning when there are four or more people killed within tw a 24 hour period. Uh, one of those incidents on average takes place each year at a school. Now actually mass shootings and school shootings have declined precipitously since the 1990s. And during the early 1990s, four times the number of children were killed in schools as are killed today. I know, you watch CNN, it looks like these things started five minutes ago and they've only increased and it's probably Trump's fault for some reason. But really, if you compare the school shootings today to those in the 1990s, the early 1990s, four times the number of kids were killed in the early 90s. Uh, there are 55 million children in the United States. On average, over the past 25 years, 10 school children per year are killed by gunfire at school. 10 is 10 too many. Nobody uh, suggests that that isn't true. Also, the imagination of man's heart is evil from the beginning. We protect civil liberties in this country, and there are more guns than people in this country, and those guns prevent crime. So there is a balancing act that's required here, and in a country of 55 million school kids, to suggest a demagogue and say this, there is an epidemic, that there are many more school shootings now, that many more children are dying. What, you don't care about dead children? What, you don't care about dead children? That is just a lie. That is lying demagoguery. We shouldn't let them get away with any of it. Even, by the way, making schools fortresses likely won't work. People are now saying we should have a guard or two guards or metal detectors or whatever. In 1989, decades ago, a shooter killed five and injured 32 elementary school children in Stockton, California by targeting them on the playground. In 2005, a 16-year-old killed 17 people at his Minnesota high school by walking through the front door metal detector and just shooting the guard. In 1998, in Arkansas, two students pulled a fire alarm and sniped people as they fled the building killing five and wounding ten. You can't eliminate these things. The imagination of man's heart is evil from the beginning. It's a very sad thing, but we have to inform our legislation, inform our policy by data, not just by the hysterics and prostituting uh, teenagers on CNN. That's really irresponsible and it's, it's a really despicable thing to do. Uh, so now we have to move on to a very important thing. This is not with guns. I wanted to end it on a high note because obviously uh, this has been a, a long couple weeks. We've just been arguing about guns all week and how to protect school children. Let's end on a high note. The Heritage Foundation has concluded that the Trump administration has already affected 64% of its agenda. Two-thirds of the 334 agenda items called for by Heritage, which puts him on a faster pace of conservative governance even than President Reagan. You know Trump, that fake conservative that a lot of Republicans still don't like because he sh sips Chardonnay with the wrong hand? That guy, he is affecting conservative policy, according to the Heritage Foundation, the preeminent conservative think tank, at a faster rate even than President Reagan. We should qualify a few things. Reagan did have a Republican Senate, but he had a Democrat House for his entire presidency. That obviously is going to slow down uh, Republican governance. Conservative governance, you got to give him credit there. Trump has a fully Republican Congress, but nevertheless, we should give him credit. He has unprecedented opposition from his own party. I still read these articles about how he doesn't sip Chardonnay the right way <laughs> or whatever. He's too uncouth. Oh, he uses naughty words. I still read that all the time, even from uh, self-styled conservatives, even from people in his own party. Uh, he faces opposition from the conservative wing, even of his party, that Ronald Reagan really uh, didn't face in quite the same way or for quite the same reasons. Uh, President Trump also has unprecedented Democrat opposition, the calls for the resistance, the special counsels from day one of his presidency, accusations of treason, whatever, people walking out. They, they, politics is always nasty. They really have upped the temperature a little bit on Trump on both sides of the aisle. So Heritage puts Trump at 64 percent. 
Uh, it put Reagan at this point in his presidency at 49 percent. Uh, so obviously that's no, no knock on the Gipper, but Trump is doing very well and much better than we expected. And his agenda has hit a wide variety of conservative policy categories. So it's not just tax reform, it's tax reform and the Mexico City policy and its strength abroad and its massive deregulation and on and on and on and on. So a really good start. And let's hope that he doesn't turn left or anything like that. Let's hope that uh, keeps going on. There's a reason that President Trump used the Ronald Reagan campaign line, Make America Great Again, and it looks like he's doing a very good job. And it looks like because of the conservative revolution that Ronald Reagan ushered in, we are now in a more conservative country than we were in in the 1980s. In many ways, uh, President Trump is building on that. It's a wonderful thing, and I'm glad to see Heritage Foundation is as pleased as I am with all the kofefe. When I think of heritage, I don't necessarily think kofefe. I think more bow ties and things like that. But, you know, maybe maybe these things all go together. Okay, uh, that is our show. We've got some really good people coming up this week, but I don't want to spoil the surprise, so you just have to tune in. Until tomorrow, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. I will see you then. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.